2012 through 2013 was a very confusing time for me. It was unique because it was for the first time in about three or four years I was a single person. I didn't have a relationship to occupy my time. I didn't have someone to have any semblance of responsibility to. And I'll elaborate on that later. But I think this reflects in my music as well when I talk about the primary piece I composed between 2012 and 2013 was Last First Kiss. And I primarily composed that in the spring of 2013, but these these segments and, and dissections of my last decade basically start with the previous school year. So fall, fall, going from fall to spring. So starting in fall 2012, going into spring 2013. And looking back on that time period, I just, I was newly single. I didn't have a codependent relationship to rely on. And, and what I learned about myself was that I told a lot of fibs and white lies. Um, and so I was coming to terms with myself to stop lying. And you'd think that'd be a simple thing to do as, as simple as that sounds, but um, I think for any of us, we fall into a trap where the lies start out small and of course they build up and become even bigger. And then before we know it, we, in a way we become addicted to our lies. Um, and that's one of the big takeaways I learned from getting out of my relationships was at least the romantic relationships is, is that I lied a lot in those relationships and that created a lot of codependency as well. And so I was, I found myself really codependent on the girls that I dated and, and if I, if they were happy, I was happy kind of feeling and, and to an extreme too. And, and then I, then there'd be also periods where I'd go to the opposite side and just not even care what they think and kind of do what I wanted. But then if they were really mad at me, if they were really upset with me, that really affected me in a unhealthy way. I'd become depressed, I'd become anxious, um, and it wouldn't motivate me to become a better human. So when I walked into my junior year at Murray State, I wasn't defined as so-and-so's boyfriend or in a relationship with such and such. I was just Jacob Thede. I was just Jacob Thede the musician, Jacob Thede the Christian, Jacob Thede the junior in Murray State, Jacob Thede, hey, it's that guy whose parents are on campus that work here. And, and that wasn't that bad of a deal, but my definitions had changed. Like who, my identity shifted in that year. Um, and so I was torn between different friend groups. Um, I had my music friends on one side who I'd been comrades with since the beginning of my time at Murray State. And then as I had gotten out of my toxic relationships, I needed and wanted to rekindle and just strengthen my friendships at the Baptist campus ministry and a lot of my Christian friends, so to speak. And so I was torn between the music friends and the Christian friends. And 
for whatever reason, there was a lot of like confusion there because based on the Christian culture, I shouldn't have done or affiliated myself with the music friends, but I loved them so much and I, and I cared for them so much and I really enjoyed being around them. So if they were living in a way that wasn't in alignment with the Christian friends, I was really like conflicted. I was just like, I want to hang out with both of them. Like, I don't care what one or the other does. I think they're cool people. I think they got some cool personalities and I think I got a lot to learn from both sides. So there was that conviction that I sensed and, and it's just something about music departments that you have your uh, a camaraderie with your classmates that you, I, I got the sense at Murray State that I didn't, that other departments didn't have, like business friends didn't really hang out with fellow business friends, maybe like a select few, but not in the way that music friends did. Um, and so I'd talk to my BCM friends and they'd say, oh yeah, you know, I got this friendship with this one classmate, but I don't really talk to them outside of my classes. And for me, it's just like, I have no choice but to talk to all my music friends outside of my classes because we're collaborating together, we're performing together, and, and something about music school is you spend all, all day with each other for unrecognized class credit hours and the sort. And so that added to the confusion between 2012 and 2013 for me. Before, I was in a relationship that I shouldn't have been in, and that was pretty simple, but just the, the chaos and the complexity of navigating the world as a single person really just got to me in a way. Um, and so yet, even though I felt closer to my music friends, I still chose and in a way forced myself to confide in my Christian friends. I was confessing deeply personal things to them and and um, and yet I felt like they didn't know me like my music friends did, even though I was sharing with them stuff that was more close to what was happening spiritually inside me. And that really tore me apart. Um, so with my music friends, I mean, I began to go to parties with them. I began, I you know, all my first experiences with with drinking were with my music friends and um, those are deeply personal and intimate too. And I think as a society, we kind of shrug off the party scene, you know, both secular and in the Christian circles. It's like, well, if you drink alcohol, you're evil. Or if you drink alcohol at a young age, you're evil. And it's like, we kind of over, and I, and maybe that's, that climate's changing where we're kind of going through what it means to go through trauma or what it means to go through deeply intimate experiences when you're young, but I was dealing with that as well. I had, I felt this claustrophobia that's just natural when you are going to the same school that you grew up in the same town in, and that's how Murray was. I went to the 13th grade. I continued my education at Murray State, and so I knew my family was there. I knew the church that I grew up in that everyone was still living there. And so if I had gone to somewhere else, nobody would know who I was in a way, you know, I'd still develop relationships and people would know me, but not in such a intrinsic claustrophobic way that 
growing up in the same town and going to the same school did for me. And so I was already convicted about lying to all those girls and messing them up. And then getting out of those and tapping into my community, it's like I was grappling with what it meant to be a truthful, honest person, what it meant to be a good person for the first time. And and, and so it, it, I remember one time at the beginning of the year, uh, in the fall of 2012, I went to a friend's apartment and there were a couple of us marching band people there. And when I look back, it could have, it, it is, it was, it was, you know, there could have been some risk and danger there, but it, I look back and it's like, that was one of the most safest places I could have been at that time to drink and to converse. And because they didn't mind if I spent the night, if I was, if anything happened to me, if I was too far gone, I didn't get too far gone. I went, I would go home, but I was safe. I was safe to stay the night there. I didn't have to drive. I didn't have to confront anybody, like all these things. But I do have a distinct memory that I, and to this day, I still haven't smoked weed or um, done any even even harder drugs. And so I remember being out in the front porch and I think I just drew the line there. I, was, I think it was mostly out of fear that like I didn't know what, would the re what the repercussions would have been. And so basically I just said no at the time. And, and eventually as I kind of recovered myself, I... I did make a personal pact with myself, a personal covenant that I got a lot of vices in this world. I don't need to add more. And so that would be kind of my excuse for not smoking weed or doing anything else that was hard. And so all this conviction, I was just a torn mess uh, my, ju my junior year of Murray State. And so that was the beginning of the year, but um, Yeah, I, I was free in a sense that year too. So amongst all this con conviction and, and internal division, I was liberated in a sense because I didn't, I wasn't responsible to anybody and I wasn't responsible half for how they felt um, for them messing me up and me messing them up. And that was incredibly, that was such an incredibly good feeling to have throughout that year was I wasn't I wasn't in a sense tied to anybody. I didn't I didn't have that deep connection with anybody and I needed that. Of course, we all need deep connections with friends and family, but like I was trying to find that and confide that in in a romantic even sexual way and I shouldn't have and it messed me up and messed them up and so I was leaving those unhealthy habits of codependency and it felt incredibly good to be liberated from them. And so when I look back on my junior year of music, I think and I just dug up Last First Kiss. It's a piano solo and it you can hear the different sections that are not complete in a sense. And you can hear certain ideas start and certain ideas end a little too soon. And I just remember being so... Uh, again, internally divided because I was incredibly insecure about harmony, um, that my pieces didn't sound unique, that they that I held Ligeti and Eric Whitaker and Windband composers in such high esteem because they had that unique sound. And I can only imagine what it feels like now and even later when the next 
big composer comes on the rise and gets super popular because they have that unique sound that's just so attractive and becomes super popular and right now it's Jacob Collier and who knows what it, who it is later but there will always be that there will always be that composer or musician or artist that is just exemplary and and entirely unique and entirely gifted and talented and intimidatingly so that you just become super insecure about music and for me it was in, I was insecure about harmony I just knew nothing beyond 251 and and staying within the diatonic scale and last first kiss kind of reflects that insecurity too one of the first chords that I used um, was just because I had listened to a lot of Joe Saishi's music He's the composer for Spirited Away and How's Moving Castle and many others, My Neighbor Totoro. And in those compositions, he uses this extended version of just a simple five of five secondary dominant chord. And it includes, I think, the ninth and the seventh. And, and it's always in applications within the melody that you can hear directly. And I wanted to incorporate that in my own music, and so Last First Kiss uses that as well. And I think Last First Kiss, the it's it's uh, it's it was for the first time music that I want. I was also very torn between academic and popular music, and just reconciling that division of growing up on NSYNC and growing up on pop music and my first musical memories being the, that music's, but I was writing this extremely rigorous and studious and research heavy academic music because my professor is a music theorist and, and he's a, he, what, he is amazing. He's an amazing teacher and, and I learned a lot from him and he has his own musical story, but I was trying to divvy out what was my musical story. And in a way that's what these recordings and vlogs and journals and podcasts and everything is for is to kind of divvy like to understand what was my musical story during these times and so i'm straddling the divide between academic and popular music and trying to figure out what did my music sound like exactly um but yet i was i was i just didn't like what I wrote because I liked what other people wrote so much more than what I wrote. I loved their harmonies, I loved their music and I just wanted to emulate it. And But I didn't have the technique, I didn't have the words to describe it. Even in, I mean like compared to now, I have, it's like night and day, I, I know what I can write, I know what I can do and I know what I want to do and I know how to kind of approach really advanced different music and praise God for that. So. I, but then I listen to the music now and I, and I hear ideas that I really did enjoy composing in that moment. I pick apart all the different sections that are unique to me and I have a, looking back on it now as a 29 year old and not a 20 year old, I I look back and I can be a little bit more confident that, yeah, I'm adding that to my repertoire. I'm adding that to my life's work. And yeah, there's some embarrassing moments in it. Um, and I shouldn't be any more embarrassed by those moments. 
I had a friend actually contact me and ask about this piece. He said, do you remember that ooey gooey love piece that you wrote that you were later embarrassed about? And I was like, I don't really know what you're talking about. He's like, the last first kiss. And he sent me a link to it. And he, I, he dug up the score on issue.com. I was like, whoa, it's still there. It's still on the internet. And, and so I did a deep dive. I recovered my old college email and Thank goodness that Google doesn't delete anything for you, that it all stays there. It's like this mini time capsule. And so I did a search, last first kiss, and I found the MIDI files and the finale files. And it's just amazing that I can still look back on that. And at that time, I started working as a desk worker at the local dormitories and I would spend most of my work shifts, which were between midnight and 4 a.m. and sometimes 4 a.m. to 8 8 a.m. I would spend those times being super emo and listening to all my favorite bands, all my favorite lyrics, and especially since I was newly single, I was listening to all the songs about romance and love and relationships. Um, And in those moments, I would take the time to just write the music to Last Friskus and um as i go through each section yeah i can recall being at that desk and composing those moments and living in this divide of being incredibly proud of it and excited about it but then incredibly ashamed of it and incredibly embarrassed by it and so i think if i can impart any wisdom to a younger Jacob Thede and a younger person who might be listening to this as a result. You're going to feel some shame and embarrassment, but you want to look back and just embrace who you were in the past, embrace who you were because the world has a million reasons to critique you and to tell you why what you did was stupid embarrassing, childish, amateurish, pointless. Um, I can think of many people in my life that have argued that was who I was. Um, maybe not directly, but even still indirectly. Many, I have many people I can think of that might make me feel shame for the creative output that I did. Um, just because I saw them mock others and I saw them mock other people's work and I think because I was exposed to those kinds of people I know exactly who I am I know that I am not a glass half half empty person I think that is in part because of my faith I think it may be part be part of my inherent temperament that if I would never if I was never exposed to religion and if I was never exposed to Christianity maybe my temperament would have been exposed you know, predisposed to be optimistic. But I think growing up in the church, I think that's one thing I have to be incredibly thankful for is just the optimism of Christianity. Um, despite all of its mistakes, despite all of its hurt that it's caused people, the gospel, plain and simple, if you read Jesus's life and you read Jesus's words, if you read Paul's words, if you read his his letters to the 
various churches. I was reading Philippians today and and just going over the classic, to live is Christ and to die is gain. What more of a statement can you get than that? It, I don't want to say that that is inherently optimistic. It's just that when you are a Christian, that is a state of being and that is truth. It is neither an opinion or optimism or pessimism, but it is truth. And so I think that's where I get that vantage point into the world and people who don't, you know, adhere to my belief system. They just kind of look at that and like, wow, that's a very half glass, half full way of life that you get to live and experience Christ and enjoy Christ and experience his blessings, but also suffer for him and suffer with him. But in the end, when you live, it's a good experience. But then when you die, you get to go and experience him and be in the new heavens and the new earth or whatever your eschatological, eschatological, there we go, eschatological vantage point and um i wrote that down and i think it really does help me parse out who i am and and who god's made me to be that despite temperament i think because of being blessed with great teachers that taught paul's letters that to live is christ and to die is gain that is not an optimistic way of life that is just how as the believer should view Christ and view life. So looking back and, and just kind of seeing things with a glass half full and, and just adhering maybe even to the truth that to live is Christ and to die is gain really changes your perspective on things. And I don't even really know where I was going. I'm sorry for the rant. So, as I was composing at the desk shift in the mornings, um, I think I slowly began to feel myself being burnt out on music. And so, what I did that year was in the fall, I took composition lessons. In the fall of 2012, I took composition lessons with my professor. And I wrote a euphonium quartet and I also wrote, yeah, so I also wrote a euphonium quartet in that year and, and I didn't really like it and I got some really weird reception from it and, um, and but I think it was necessary because I explored I had different ideas. I tried to do like tempo modulation and I tried to do um, different harmonies, different textures and motivic development and all that stuff. I think the piece was based on four tones, these four tones and Oh my gosh. And I also got to experience writing for brass for the first time. And I think that was a lot of fun. And I wrote, I wrote for my friends who were just incredibly talented at the euphonium. <laughs> but um, in the end, I, I didn't really like the piece. I didn't really enjoy composing it. Um, and I, and I look back and I think it was necessary for me to write that. And I think, I had to push through the distaste and the and the dislike of the what I was writing to understand that a writing music that I writing the perceived conception of like 
atonal music was not for me. I, you know, I didn't, I wasn't passionate about it and I had no, you know, I had no room to write for it. And that's just something that's okay. It's neither good or bad. And it was good. It was okay for me to feel that way and to, and then continue to adhere to this kind of style. But then it also gave me room to experiment with the techniques for euphonium and experiment for those techniques of, um, composition, whether it's motivic development or limiting yourself to the number of tones you can write in, in a piece. So I was, I, the next semester, because I wrote that piece and I didn't have very good experience and because I was trying to get out in four years and graduate in four years and I was taking all these classes, I elected to not take composition lessons that semester. And so I wrote Last First Kiss um, without the supervision so to speak, with my professor. And that was really liberating too, but it was also scary because it was unknown territory and it kind of, you know, asked the, you know, asked the question, am I motivated without my professor? Because I had another teacher who, uh, in a way, like, you know, made me really feel very special in, in one lecture and um, whether he was intending it or not, but he was talking about just the need and the desire to compose and and so he was talking about how like you just have this itch and you just have to scratch it and you just have to do it because that's what you were made to do and all these all these kind of ideas and he goes like is in that right jake you do that use and i'm like yeah and i was just trying to like support him but at the same time in that moment i was like i only write music because i take lessons and i have someone pushing me and i have a deadline to do it and and if it was up to me and my lazy butt, I wouldn't do it at all. And so, but I think that semester really solidified it for me. The spring of 2013 um, of the 2012 school year, it really solidified that I had an inherent desire to compose and to make music and to explore and, and do that, especially since I had been given the tools like Finale. I remember it was such a big deal three years before that to receive a copy of Finale software for Christmas. That was a huge deal. And so I installed it on my computer and I had the full version and I was able to use all of the different tools and and I was able to save and I was write, able to write for multiple instruments because I think back then, like the Finale trial, you're only allowed to compose on a grand staff for so many measures with only the tools that allowed you to do triplets and eighth notes and up to like 64th notes but like no tuplets no like five tuplets seven tuplets or anything else no weird time signatures and just incredibly limiting and i had been composing on that version of finale since high school so it was just such a big deal for me to compose so here i am a junior spring of 2013 and i have finale at my disposal and i really did learn in that moment in that semester yes i have a desire to compose that is in me and that is that is good and i do not need supervision i do not need the adult supervision i don't need a teacher to to push my butt to do this it certainly helps but that desire is in there and so that was a really gratifying and good thing for me to realize um and so as i was composing that piece i you know, it was it was because of a collaboration with a good friend, Paul Vera, who's killing it in the artist realm and becoming an amazing artist. And um, we collaborated, and and so I wrote 
a piano piece to one of his drawings and that inspired the creation of it and i and i i was so inspired by his art and his um creativity and that made me want to do the musical equivalent of it and I, and and i think a small part of me um has that check in my brain of just like am i being a true artist and i think one of my examples is de paul vera so if you're listening to this i don't know if you are de paul but you continue to be a marker and 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 a an inspiration to me i and not not a codependent way not a like a compare and despair way but you continue to be an inspiration to me um and so from there i was as i was composing in the spring of 2013 i was also learning how to play euphonium from scratch because i had a dream to be in a drum corps and to be part of drum corps international and dci altogether and so i auditioned for van regiment and i failed on my butt but it was a good failure and i came home and i continued to practice euphonium and baritone and then i eventually auditioned for the blue stars and i played in concert bands for the euphonium and i got into blue stars and later that summer i would march with them and on top of all that too i was put preparing for a junior recital and i was playing extremely difficult music with one of my best buddies eric stroop and um yeah, it was just an incredible year altogether, and I think finally what I have to say is that last first kiss is is such a vulnerable piece for me, and I think that's why it's so hard to think about and talk about. It's so easy to be embarrassed and ashamed about because, man, I put my heart out on the table. I put my whole naked body on display for everyone to see and that's what it felt like writing that music it was the first time that i wrote what i loved to listen to i wrote what was influencing me and i and i was able to get out of the academic mindset and and try to succeed on my own and i think this piece both succeed and succeeded and failed but both were necessary and it failed even better than my euphonium quartet. Um, with my euphonium quartet, it was all about technique and the logical side of things. But Last for Skiss, it applied some compositional techniques, but it also applied some emotional techniques as a composer to be able to be emotionally, musically vulnerable. And that's something that I, I want so desperately to unpack, but it's so hard to get words to explain what I mean by that. And I was listening to one podcast and they were talking about the academicness of composition and how it's changed over time and how on earth could it be this research and like how on earth could we, how could, how on earth could a composer just get a PhD and, and, write about music that people will never listen to and and I, I strongly disagree with that because i think there's just something to the some of the composers out there i don't know how many maybe it's all composers but we also love to talk and converse and exchange ideas about our music and it's not all about we're not just a one 
one thing machine. We don't just make music. We like to think about it and talk about it and converse about it and trade ideas about it. And I think that's why it's so important to that. And it's so good that the, that composition and composing is no longer just a trade or an apprenticeship. It's a academic pursuit. It's a place that we can converse about it and think about it and talk about it and exchange those ideas with each other. And boy, oh boy, that makes us better as a society and better as humans to be able to exchange these ideas and to enjoy them and to enrich our lives and to give new meaning and purpose and to give a little bit of that placebo effect in our brains to continue and to extend our lifetimes because we have something to live for. Um, yeah. So more later, but I'll talk to you guys next time.